Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with oral arguments before the Supreme Court today in which Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch seem to support the alarming fringe legal theory known as the Independent State Legislature Theory, which removes state Supreme Courts from election decisions, giving all power to state legislatures. Joining us is Fred Wertheimer, the founder and president of Democracy 21, a non-profit, non-partisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics and related reforms to accomplish these goals. He has spent 35 years working on government integrity issues, and we will discuss his article at the Brookings Institution, Democracy on the Ballot. The independent state legislature theory will not empower state legislatures to override presidential election results. Then we'll examine the dismissal of a lawsuit against the Saudi crown prince at the behest of the Biden administration, who in return got stiffed again by Mohammed bin Salman, who today is greeting China's Xi Jinping on a state visit. Joining us is the person who brought the lawsuit, Sarah Lee Whitson, the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World, now Dawn, who was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries. She has led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights, and has published widely on human rights issues in the Middle East in international and regional media. Then finally, Brett Schaefer joins us to examine who is giving aid and comfort to the enemy, or who is a useful idiot, and expand on his quotes in an article at The Guardian, Top U.S. Conservatives Pushing Russian Spin on Ukraine War, Experts Say. He is a senior fellow and head of the information manipulation team for the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund, an expert on computational propaganda, state-backed information operations, and tech regulation. He is the creator and manager of Hamilton 2.0, an online open-source dashboard tracking the outputs of Russian, Chinese, and Iranian state media outlets, diplomats, and government officials. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Fred Wertheimer, the founder and president of Democracy 21, a non-profit, non-partisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics, and related reforms to accomplish these goals. He has spent 35 years working on government integrity issues and has an article at the Brookings Institution, Democracy on the Ballot, the Independent State Legislative Theory Will Not Empower State Legislature to Override Presidential Election Results. Welcome to Background Briefing, Fred Wertheimer. Hello, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the Supreme Court today heard, heard oral arguments in the case brought by North Carolina 
to institute the independent state legislature theory, which is often referred to as a fringe theory, yet it has gotten the attention of the Supreme Court. And indeed, they deliberated in terms of questioning for three hours, which was an unexpectedly long oral argument. So does this thing have a chance, do you think, of uh, of getting a majority, given that there's a six to three fairly very conservative majority on this on this supreme court well if we had a real supreme court this case would never even reach them this is a a truly fringe theory uh but who can predict with this court the case is overwhelming that this theory this theory makes no sense it basically says that when it comes to state legislatures adopting laws about about federal elections such as the voting rules for federal elections or redistricting that the state supreme court cannot review the legislation even if it violates the state constitution it's it's really an absurd case but who knows with this court uh I would doubt that Roberts would go for this, but if if he doesn't, he still has to get a fifth vote. And it looks as though if there's any possibility of a fifth vote, it might be Kavanaugh, but that's a that's a pretty thin straw to rest <laughs> the hopes of having future elections in this country that can't be completely overridden by state legislatures. This is happening at a time when we've seen this kind of insanity take place in states like Arizona. Aren't the Supreme Court following the news? Are they aware of what's happening in this country? Well, if they are, they would know that every every election denier who ran for state office lost, including the deniers in Arizona. But the thing is, this no matter how this case comes out, it will not empower a state legislature to overturn the de- decision of voters on a presidential election and name their own presidential electors. It, it is not at play in this uh, in this theory. Well, if the ECRA is passed, the Electoral Count Reform Act, the whole possibility of this independent legislature theory would would be neutralized, would it not? And they're close to doing that. Uh, Amy Klobuchar is leading the efforts in the Senate. They, apparently they've got 15 Republicans on board. That, that's correct. And uh, it's, it, it's important because it, it, uh, it gets rid of an antiquated exception written into this law uh, that provides a hook after the election for state legislatures to argue they can overturn the election. But the background of this is the following. State legislatures under the Constitution get to decide who chooses presidential elections. For decades and decades, every state in the country has uh, declared that the voters uh, in the state will choose the electors. 
There are no exceptions to that. The Constitution also says that the Congress and federal law will decide when the electors are chosen. And federal law says electors are chosen on election day. Uh, uh, and, and that doesn't mean you have to know the count, but it, they're chosen on election day. And after they're chosen, the state legislature can't override it. They don't even have any role in it. But the problem that exists is that a 1887 law provided that if there is a failed choice in the election, then the state legislatures can come in and, uh, and choose their own electors. Well, this was done in the 1880s because it was a horse and buggy day. And we didn't, they didn't know if there was a huge storm or earthquake, whether people could get to the polls. But it has no consequence, no basis today. And the Electoral Count Reform Act will eliminate this failed choice concept. Uh, and so it's very important to pass. It's on track right now for passing. Senator Schumer and, and uh, Majority Leader Schumer and Republican Leader McConnell are co-sponsors of the Klobuchar bill. So we think the chances are excellent that it will pass. Now, the, the state legislature theory, if it is ever adopted by the court, will talk about what states' legislatures can do in federal elections, but it doesn't include that they could uh, uh, overturn the choice by voters on election day. But in terms of today's hearings before the Supreme Court, where the conservative majority seemed to be open to these arguments on this fringe theory, which is in itself alarming, Justice Elena Kagan said this is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances at exactly the time when they are most needed. And then she went on to say, our president gives you lots of problems. And then Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson said, it is to the lawyer for North Carolina, it is your argument that state constitutions have no role. And Justice Sonia Sotomayor again charged the lawyer that he's rewriting history. The most brazen thing of all, surely, Fred Wertheimer, is that these conservatives and originalists on the right, on this court, a big on states' rights. I mean, they just cited states' rights in the Dobbs abortion decision, and now they're basically saying the state has no role. So, Well, I mean, they, the history is very clear that this argument is wrong. And furthermore, just think about it. What, what, they, what they would say if they adopted the argument is that the state legislature laws in this area cannot be reviewed by the Supreme Court. Are they willing to say the same thing about federal laws, that they can't be reviewed by the Supreme Court? No. And in fact, three years ago, every one of these conservative justices who was at the, on the court at the time, I don't think Justice Barrett was, every one of them signed an opinion that refused to interfere in a reapportionment case and Justice Roberts wrote 
And the reason is there are other remedies here. For example, the state Supreme Court can review this. So to adopt this theory would be a complete hypocritical reversal of their own opinion taken three years ago. I mean, you know, we are dealing, we're not dealing with a conservative court. We're dealing with a radical court who doesn't seem to have any boundaries. They, 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 they view the law as what they want it to be at the time. They give very little recognition to past precedents, which has always been a factor. So I can't say what they're going to do. I can say whatever they do is not going to affect, in this case, uh, the ability of state legislatures to overturn presidential elector elections in which the voters have chosen a president. Right, but the case was brought by North Carolina because the state Supreme Court in North Carolina struck down these egregious gerrymandering maps. So it still will have a massive amount of damage, won't it? No, this is incredibly damaging and dangerous. It, as Justice Kagan said, it provides no protections. It makes the state legislature the supreme voice in a state, which has never been the case, never. And it is very dangerous to voting rights in federal law, to in federal elections, to redistricting cases. It would be a disaster if they adopted this. Well, Thomas Alito and Gorsuch all seem very sympathetic. So are we just to finally, I don't know why most Americans haven't figured this out already, but if they get a majority vote on this, assuming that Roberts joins in the minority and it still goes down, surely the American people have to recognize that these right-wing justices are political activists in robes. Yeah, I think they're recognizing that to a degree already. The Supreme Court has its lowest uh, approval rating uh, since Gallup started measuring this. They, they are not approved by a significant majority of the American people. And they just keep digging the hole deeper. But they don't again, care. They don't appear to care, but the consequences will be devastating, won't they, for Democrats? The consequences will be devastating for the country, never mm. mind the Democrats. <laughs> right, but the Democrats will be on the losing end of it. Well, not in state legislatures that they control. For example, they now control the Michigan state legislature and the Minnesota state legislature, which they did not prior to this election. Right. The larger question is, this is incredibly destructive of our democracy as it existed for centuries. That's the lead here as far as I'm concerned. Right, and then that raises the question of originalism, doesn't it? Or at least stare decisis, which is what... Well, if they were paying attention to originalism, they would never do this. Right. So what are they paying? I mean, if they're violating all of their so-called principles of stare decisis, originalism, and states' rights. What's left? Whatever they want to do next. 
Well, this is an alarming situation. And will it lead then, if it happens, to, and not that the Democrats control the House, but is the inevitable re response then, if this goes in the worst possible way, that there'll be moves to add seats on the Supreme Court, term limits, you name it? Is there, is there any recourse? I don't know, but they are certainly driving the country to changing the Supreme Court rules. Uh, their Hobbes decision had absolutely uh, was a wrong decision, rejected a half century of law. Alito, when he wrote the decision, ins insulted the Republican and Democratic appointed judges who have justices who had been supporting this for 50 years. Well, so, Alito just made jokes about the notion that they could basically throw out any discrimination laws in this country, which is what they heard yesterday before the Supreme Court. And again, that was incredibly alarming. But then Alito then makes jokes about uh, when Katanji Brown-Jackson talks about the hypothetical of a white Santa not wanting to have black kids on his lap, and that would be okay if the Supreme Court changed the rules, then <laughs> Alito says, well, what about kids today like to dress up in Klan outfits? I mean, I've never heard of that. Have you? No. Alito is a very arrogant man, and he is... You know the old saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely? Well, he is misusing absolute power uh, as if he has been anointed. By the Lord God Almighty. So I thank you for joining us here today, Fred Wertheimer. Okay, glad to talk to you. And again, I'm speaking with Fred Wertheimer, who's the founder and president of Democracy 21 a non-profit, non-partisan organization that promotes campaign finance, lobbying, ethics, and related reforms to accomplish these goals. He spent 35 years working on government integrity issues, and he has an article at the Brookings Institution, Democracy on the Ballot, the Independent State Legislature Theory Will Not Empower State Legislatures to Override Presidential Election Results. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with the person who brought the lawsuit against the Saudi Crown Prince, that was dismissed today at the behest of the Biden administration. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarah Lee Whitson, the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, who was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries. She has led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights and has published widely on human rights issues in the Middle East in international and regional media. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Lee Whitson. 
Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, uh, U.S. Federal Judge John Bates dismissed a lawsuit that you and your organization, Dawn, brought against uh, Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, along with the fiancé of the murdered Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Now, the judge did, in uh, announcing his opinion, he said he had a certain amount of uneasiness about it, and he also felt that there was really suspicious timing that Mohammed bin Salman was suddenly appointed prime minister, which was the argument that the Biden administration used to say that you that you couldn't sue him because he's he's now effectively a head of state. So since you lost today, how does it feel? Um, disappointed, um, really just disappointed that uh, our efforts uh, over the past two years have not succeeded uh, to date. And just trying to think about where we go from here in terms of our lawsuit. We are uh, trying to figure out whether we're going to appeal this decision and, and how much time and resource we want to continue to spend on this effort given that the Biden administration has really put its fist on the scale. But did Biden get anything out of this? I mean, why? You know, remember Biden, of course, that started out during the campaign saying that he would make Mohammed bin Salman a pariah. And there was a lot of concern that he was compromising his original promises, meeting with the, the Saudi crown prince. And against a lot of advice, he went and met with Mohammed bin Salman and did the famous fist bump and was humiliated on Saudi TV live when MBS basically refused to uh, pump more oil and, in fact, said he was going to do the opposite. So as bad as that is, he's just handed a gift to MBS. And how has MBS repaid Biden? Today, he's hosting Xi Jinping of China, and he's also thrown his lot in with Putin. So are we stupid? What's going on here? Well, you know, I think that there needs to be sort of a fresh understanding of um, how this relationship is structured. And I think we need to let go of the notion that the U.S. is the boss uh, in the relationship. I think the events of the past six months have really highlighted uh, how, in fact, Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman are the bosses of the relationship. Um, and that is because of their resource uh, advantage uh, in the what they can offer in terms of oil and control of the price of oil, um, as well as the resources they spend on U.S. weapons. Uh, politically, they are also pay, playing a very important card. Um, it's not clear to me why this is an important card for the United States or should be an important card to the United States. Um, but since the Biden administration has said uh, that Saudi Arabia signing on to the Abraham Accords uh, to normalize its relationship with Israel is a top priority for the United States. Uh, therefore, Saudi Arabia can dangle that uh, and use it as a bargaining chip. Um, and so those are the cards that Saudi Arabia uh, is playing and uh, playing to good effect, because time and again, we see the administration talking tough but doing nothing. 
Um, and it's doing nothing because, in fact, it wants to preserve the arms sales. Uh, it wants to beg and plead that Saudi Arabia doesn't make further cuts to oil. And it wants Saudi Arabia to sign a normalization agreement with Israel. Now, this week, the administration weighed in with yet another interest, um, because it was very obvious to the entire world um, that we weren't getting anything in terms of uh, the oil uh, and, and the oil prices, given the announcement of uh, uh, doubling down on the cuts uh, on Sunday. Uh, and that is, uh, and this is the words of the Biden administration, um, not mine, that we get to maintain our military bases and our assets uh, in Saudi Arabia. And that in and of itself is deemed to be an interest of the United States. Now, again, why is it an interest of the United States? No critical examination whatsoever. Um, but clearly the Biden administration is telling us and telling the world uh, that maintaining US military hegemony in the Middle East is an American priority. Well, the idea that Israel is the tail that wags the dog is kind of depressing, if that's in case. Why we're doing this just to please Israel as opposed to deal with our own interests. But I think that Mohammed bin Salman stiffing the United States, it probably plays well with his domestic audience as much as it matters because it's an absolute dictatorship there. So what do you think is the chance of any way to remove this guy? Because I, I consider him a menace to humanity, you know, not just the murdering and dismemberment of a Washington Post reporter, but obviously he wouldn't have got into the position he's in but for, for Trump himself. Trump elevated him over the original crown prince um, and obviously made huge business deals with him and the payoffs continue with over $2 billion being handed to Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, and then also, I think, a billion to his former Treasury Secretary, Mnuchin, who's running around carrying the Saudi Arabian's water now, arguing against a price cap on Russian oil. And here you have, have MBS and the Gulf Emirates siding with Russia to, uh, and helping finance the war against Ukraine. I mean, don't we recognize the obvious, that these regimes, Russia, the Emirates, and Saudi Arabia, are dedicated against democracy. They're fighting against democracy, and they want every bit of their oil sold at the highest price possible for as long as possible. So they're therefore, in fact, at war with the planet in terms of global warming. So why are we being cowed and manipulated by the, this horrible regime that is about destroying democracy and destroying the planet? Um, I think because our government is not making its decisions and its policies based on um, what is in the interests of our country or what is in the interests of our planet. Um, they have identified as their priorities um, maintaining U.S. military hegemony in the region, for which they need compliant uh, uh, dictators who will permit us to have our military bases there. Um, they want to maintain robust military sales uh, to the region, and the Saudi Arabia is uh, the, America's number one weapons purchasing client, and UAE is the number two weapons purchasing client. 
Um, and so they are very important clients uh, for the U.S. defense industry. And uh, the U.S. government is a very important agent for the defense industry. In fact, they work hand in hand. Um, uh, in terms of climate, I think all of these climate commitments uh, evaporated, particularly ahead of the midterms, where the Biden administration's only priority was increasing uh, uh, the, the output of fossil fuels so as to lower oil prices. Nobody was thinking about uh, why uh, we are increasing oil output when we know the harms of increasing uh, the consumption of fossil fuels. Uh, all of those uh, discussions, in fact, completely fell away at COP27, um, where any efforts to cap uh, 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 greenhouse emissions, any efforts to cap uh, the production uh, of fossil fuels was completely quashed. There were no resolutions uh, uh, about that. And instead, uh, it became a, uh, a bribe exercise where uh, Western states agreed to set up a reparations fund for uh, states of the global south to compensate them for uh, the harms they've experienced uh, due to uh, uh, global warming. Uh, this, of course, does nothing to address ongoing climate damage. Well, the COP27 was at Sharm el-Sheikh, which is a playground for Saudi princes. So, you know, from day one, it didn't look like it was um, the right venue for, as far as I'm concerned, Sarah. But given that Trump helped bring Mohammed bin Salman to power, you know, he made his first uh, trip to Saudi Arabia and did his sword dance. And obviously money has changed hand. And as I mentioned, the, the son-in-law got a huge payoff against the wishes of the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. He got over $2 billion. So that whole relationship stinks. And these people like Trump and Jared Kushner are quite simply traitors because they're taking money from people who are causing pain for the American consumer at the pump. So it leads me to question whether or not, you know, those that live by the sword can perish by the sword. In other words, is there anything left in Saudi Arabia's politics since essentially what MBS has conducted is a coup against the royal family that he belongs to, uh, engineered and helped by, by Jared Kushner and, and Donald Trump? Is there anything left in, within Saudi Arabia that could get rid of him? As I mentioned earlier... He's probably pretty popular, particularly with the young people, because he's allowed them to go to the movies and drive, etc. But he's a menace on the global stage, and you simply can't reward psychotic murderers like him. But that's unfortunately what's happening. Um, it is unfortunately what's happening. In terms of the domestic front in Saudi Arabia, um, uh, you're right to point out his popularity, particularly among the youth, uh, because of the social liberalization, uh, rave parties, opening the country up to tourism, uh, uh, removing some of the worst indicia of sex segregation and, and very strict uh, religious imposed dress codes uh, and so forth. Those were very popular moves um, with uh, uh, the young in Saudi Arabia under 25 who actually make up over 70% of the population. Um, but uh, at the same time, and I think this actually explains more of his hold on power, uh, he has completely decapitated any of the other independent power bases in the country. Uh, the business community has been completely brought to heel. 
the religious establishment has been completely defanged, um, and the royal family, uh, uh, the thousands and thousands of princes whose consent and acquiescence to royal rule uh, has traditionally been necessary, uh, have basically been jailed in their own country. Um, uh, thousands of Saudis are not free to leave the country. Uh, there is uh, massive arrests, uh, lengthy imprisonments for anyone who dares criticize Mohammed bin Salman. So there is a reign of terror in the country. It's a very, very hard to resist. Uh, politically resist to challenge or to question any of MBS's uh, uh, decisions and actions, whether inside the country uh, or in terms of the, the, the regional machinations like the ongoing uh, war uh, in Yemen. Um, but, you know, in terms of the Trump administration, I wish I could say that this was all the Trump administration's wrongdoing, um, uh, because the reality is that even though President Biden came in promising to hold Saudi Arabia accountable, promising to make them a quote unquote pariah, uh, just as recently as last month, promising to recalibrate the relationship. It has been nothing but hollow rhetoric. And that is because the Biden administration itself, Republicans and Democrats themselves, are compromised. They have conflicts of interest. That's why it's not just Jared Kushner uh, and Steven Mnuchin who are being paid off uh, by uh, Saudi Arabia for jobs well done while they were in office. There are over 500 senior U.S. government officials, the vast majority of whom have left their jobs to work for Saudi Arabia and the UAE and other Gulf states at salaries that are exponentially greater than anything they ever earned when in public service. How can we trust our government officials, our military officials, to make decisions in the interests of the American people when they have one foot out the door, polishing up their resumes, planning their next career move with the governments uh, of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, Qatar, and so forth. The problem is we don't have any control uh, over the conflicts of interest of our own government officials. And this completely cuts across Republicans and Democrats. Well, Sarah Lee Whitson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Lee Whitson, who's the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, who was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries. She has led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights, and has published widely on human rights issues in the Middle East in international and regional media. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining who is giving aid and comfort to the enemy or who is a useful idiot as top U.S. conservatives push Russian spin on the Ukraine war. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Brett Schaefer, who's a senior fellow and head of the Information Manipulation Team for the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund, an expert on the computational propaganda, state-backed information operations, and tech regulation. He is the creator and manager of Hamilton 2.0, an online open-source dashboard tracking the outputs of Russian, Chinese, and Iranian state media outlets, diplomats, and government officials. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brett Schaefer. Thanks for having me. So, Brett, I've been trying to figure out what motivates the pro-Putin caucus in the U.S. Congress and in right-wing media. 
and that's your specialty. So help me out here. Why do we have people who, you know, I think you could describe them as traitors. I mean, uh, the whole world is pretty much against what Putin is doing. So it's hard to understand why Americans would support this guy. There has been a sort of strand uh, among the far right of affinity for Putin, I think, because of his sort of strong man persona. And you, of course, can find your parallels in the U.S. there. So for years, there has been at least this sort of undercurrent of support for the Kremlin, especially around their position uh, on social issues, sort of the anti-LGBT kind of position that Putin has taken. And so in some ways that has just sort of naturally bled over to, if not outright support for Russia in their war in Ukraine, at least opposition to supporting the Ukrainians. And so when you look at the individual messaging coming out of the right flank of the GOP, It is more along the lines of we should not be supporting Ukraine than it is I support Russia because of X, Y, and Z. And so the arguments we typically see tend to be sort of pocketbook arguments of like, look, the U.S. has its own problems. We should be defending our own border. We're paying, you know, $4 a gallon for gas. Why are we supporting the Ukrainians? But then there also is, uh, there is a bit of Russian propaganda, if not disinformation, that bleeds into some of that commentary as well. So we do see some talking about neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Uh, We do see some talking about Ukrainian atrocities. We do see some sort of laundering the same kind of narratives that we see out of Russian propaganda outlets. So that's a little bit different than saying, I don't think we should be supporting the Ukrainians at the level we're supporting them. We don't have the money to support them. And so you see those sort of two distinctions. One is just pulling back support, and then the other is actually saying the Russians are in the right here, which which is a totally different thing. Well, there's also some sympathy for Putin on the left in this country as well. Not, Not a lot, but in some circles you get people basically either wittingly or unwittingly touting the Russian line on the need for peace in Ukraine, which we all share, except the version of the need for peace that they're touting is the Russian version, which is basically a one-sided deal that would permanently destabilize Ukraine. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And generally speaking, when you have looked for voices in the American ecosystem, not just politicians, of course, but members of the media, bloggers, podcasters, the anti-imperialist left has typically been the ones who have adopted some Russian talking points about Ukraine and foreign policy in general, because there is just this sort of reflexive opposition to whatever the U.S. is supporting overseas. So because the U.S. is supporting Ukraine, the current administration at least, there is just opposition to that. So they've often found a home with this sliver of the left that is so opposed to U.S. foreign policy that it swings away all the way to the other side and is supportive of authoritarians, whether that's the Iranians, the Russians, the Chinese. You found far fewer voices uh, among 
politicians on the left. However, there have been some exceptions. There was a, a candidate for the House in Kentucky, a guy named Jeff Young, who was far and away the most vocal supporter of Putin in the last midterm election. I mean, he had probably 500 plus tweets over a three month period about Ukraine, all of his messaging directly in support of Russia, peddling lines again about neo-Nazis. He was retweeting Russian propaganda outlets. So you, you have these isolated cases of people on the left who are uh, really extreme in their opposite, not only opposition to supporting Ukraine, but support for Putin. Um, but it definitely are sort of isolated cases at this point. And nothing near as influential or as numerous as on the right, particularly amongst the House Republicans and the Freedom Caucus members such as Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Scott Perry. And back in May, 54 Republican members of the House voted against a $40 billion aid package for Ukraine. So given the tenuous nature of whether or not McCarthy will be the speaker, I mean, Andy Biggs is going to challenge him on January the 3rd. So isn't it likely that McCarthy's going to have to, you know, sort of go on bended knee to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gosar and these others and get them on side so that he can become speaker and therefore make a compromise? He's already said that he won't give Ukraine a blank check. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's right. And it's unclear at this point the effect that the Freedom Caucus will have on the official sort of GOP position regarding support for Ukraine and continued aid. In, I think, more private conversations, um, you know, McCarthy and many of the other members of the GOP are still supportive of Ukrainian aid, but they're, they're being pulled in the other direction. And I think McCarthy understands that to remain speaker, he is going to have to acquiesce at least to some degree to the positions of the right flank of the party. And they happen to be the most vocal in the party when it comes to Ukraine. So again, if you're looking across social media channels, the members of the GOP who are really true supporters of Ukraine, including a few who are Ukrainian, Ukrainian Americans, they're drowned out by the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the party. So when you look at, for example, the top 100 most retweeted tweets of the last three or four months mentioning Ukraine, roughly 90% are in opposition to continued support for Ukraine. So even though there may be more members of the GOP who are actually in favor of continuing to support Ukraine in their effort to, to, fight, to fight the Russian invasion, those members are not particularly vocal, or, or at least their commentary is being dwarfed by the anti-Ukrainian messages coming from the right flank. And, and then that's problematic because, of course, politicians respond to public opinion. And if you're able to sway public opinion by being the most vocal, uh, the most sort of aggressive in your opposition, that, I think, can affect policy. So obviously the most influential voice is on Fox News, their number one broadcaster, Tucker Carlson. But I want to talk to you about his influence and why he is so pro-Putin. But just to touch on this other group, I mean, RT, Russia Today, shut down its U.S. operations. But Rumble, which is a video sharing platform popular with people on the right, it's been financed 
by both J.D. Vance, who ran for the Senate and was successful in Ohio, and also backed by the billionaire Peter Thiel. So do we know what motivates them? In the Ohio senatorial campaign, I could never quite understand what J.D. Vance's affection for Russia was. But he, I guess what he kept plugging was, you know, particularly in Ohio, was a lot of unemployment from the Rust Belt. The jobs issue, why are we you know, giving money to the Ukrainians and not investing in American workers or something? I mean, I guess maybe you know more about what he said, but have you figured out what motivates Teal and J.D. Vance? No, I mean, J.D. Vance's take on support for Ukraine is sort of the dominant position among those who oppose the support of Ukraine. Again, it's it's not that... I am a fan of Putin necessarily, or I think the war is just. It, it, it's this argument to these sort of pocketbook, pocketbook issues of we should be spending money here, we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine, uh, we don't have the money for it. So that's, that, that's always been a, a pretty easy sell, I mean, especially in the face of inflation and gas prices, and it allows it's a safe space, I think, to make that argument, because to come out vocally in support of the Kremlin right now, that's a that's a pretty tenuous position to take, even on the right. Um, you know, certainly some have, but that's an extreme minority. But it is a much safer argument to simply say, like, this is not our war. Let them fight it out. Ukraine is not a perfect democracy. And so that, you know, the J.D. Vance argument is what we have predominantly seen from the part of the GOP that is opposed to Ukrainian aid. Um, but why there is this, this affinity for Putin, or why there was an affinity for Putin before the war began, uh, that's a little bit harder to suss out. But I mean, you could look at dictators around Europe, around the globe. I mean, take Orban in Hungary, who was, of course, invited to CPAC. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's concerning, obviously, when you see the bonds being formed with individuals who 10, 20 years ago, I think they're clearly the GOP would have been openly opposed to. Well, the argument that they give in some of them that we're depleting U.S. military stocks by supplying them with HIMARS and other weapon systems is complete nonsense because we're not supplying them with the latest material. This is 1990s technology. What it does expose is just how pathetic and, and how much a paper tiger the Russian military is. So the argument can be quickly refuted by the simple fact that whatever military aid we give to Ukraine, if you're thinking in military terms, has been incredibly cheap because mm -hmm. the Ukrainian military have basically destroyed the Russian military, which is, uh, you know, the U.S.'s main adversary, along with the Chinese, in terms of, again, in terms of military thinking, not that I advocate that kind of thinking. So does anybody ever made that argument to these people that this is nonsense, that one, you know, they're not getting the latest equipment, and two, they're doing the American military's job for them by degrading the Russians to the point where there'll no longer be any kind of a military threat, not to mention that they would continue to be a threat because of their massive nuclear arsenal. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, there, of course, is a moral argument here. 
And it, it's somewhat shocking to me in this case where it does seem to be such a clear case of uh, a black and white sort of good versus evil thing of, of an, a clear aggressor here. I mean, you know, there's always a little bit of, of gray, but this is not a scenario where I think it's hard to figure out who the good guys are in this conflict. So you can make that more argument, but you can make a more self-interested geopolitical strategic argument as you just laid out. And most of the aid going to Ukraine, if you talk about military aid, I mean, it's it's being cycled right back to the US, of course, because it's going to defense contractors and things when you can argue about whether or not you know that's a good thing. But in many ways, Ukrainians are fighting the fight for us. And the investment that we're making there is a cheap investment. I think, again, it is the morally right position to take to support Ukraine. Ukraine certainly has its fault, its faults and its flaws, as all countries do. But like, this is a country that is clearly, if you're looking at who is on the right side of the barricades in terms of making improvements to democracy, Ukraine is it. And so I don't quite understand why that just really sort of basic argument around what is in our best interest isn't kind of breaking through in that ecosystem. Um, and then, you know, you see sort of wild conspiracy theories pop up as well that Ukrainian US aid to Ukraine uh, was funneled through FTX, the cryptocurrency site that crashed just as a way to launder money back into Democrats' pocket. I mean, there's there's been some wild stuff that has popped up. Um, and again, I, I don't quite understand it because it's, this seems to be a scenario where it's pretty easy to decide who we should be supporting here. And again, you can make the moral argument and you can make the just the basic sort of national security argument, but I don't know why that's not kind of breaking through. Well, there is one quarter where the uh, support for Putin is unequivocal and unapologetic in terms of an ideological support, and that comes from none other than Donald Trump's recent Thanksgiving dinner guest along with Kanye West, uh, Nick Fuentes, the young Nazi. He's always promoting Putin, leading chants of Putin, 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 when he had Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Goser on stage with him. And back in March... Puente said on his podcast, we continue to support Tsar Putin in the war effort. So that's about as open as you can get, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I do think it is important to make the distinction between those who have questions about our level of support for Ukraine. Again, I would push back against that. And going back to the argument you just made, I think it is a good use of my taxpayer, my tax dollars to support Ukraine uh, on many levels. But there should be a distinction between questioning that and being a vocal supporter of Russia in this war. And the latter, I think, needs to be called out in a very different way. So when you've seen that coming from these far-right extreme characters, that's problematic, but it's also clearly far more problematic when it's coming from more mainstream um, commentators on the right who have huge audiences. And again, there, there's been this affinity that's been built up over time because of sort of cultural conservatism issues. Um, you know, and Putin's smart. He, he understands propaganda and how to play into that. So he has created a bunch of policies that kind of play to this anti-woke culture. And he has done that strategically, I think, to rally a little bit of in international support from the right. 
and the sort of unity around, you know, the, the, the great irony, of course, is if you look at RT and Sputnik, they often have adopted this sort of position that they are the anti-censorship outlets for the globe that this is the one space where you'll find truth and actual debate. Of course, they're representing a government that censors its own media to degrees that we can't even imagine in the US. So you have people who work for outlets in a country uh, or who represent a government that has systematically destroyed freedom of speech for 150 million Russians, where if you're an actual journalist in Russia, you either have had to move abroad, stop being a journalist, or you've been killed, and yet these outlets ha have found a home with people sort of shouting anti-censorship slogans. I mean, it's all, it would be kind of comical if it wasn't so tragic, uh, but Putin is smart and, and he has played into the sort of anti-wokeness culture that exists on the right, and I think that's where he's, he's found support, and again, that's just kind of bled over to what they're doing in Ukraine. So just in the last minute, Tucker Carlson, of course, I mentioned earlier, he's the most influential voice on Fox. It's interesting, I was talking with uh, Andrew Weiss on Sunday, and he made that point that these other voices on the right, including Bannon and company, they pale before the influence of Tucker Carlson being the most influential voice on Fox. And I mentioned to Andrew that a friend of mine was high up in, in Murdoch's organization, and uh, when Murdoch came back from visiting Putin, you know, over a decade ago, my friend said, what do you think of Putin? And Murdoch said, he's a bloody gangster. So if that's the attitude of the guy that owns Fox, why are they letting Tucker Carlson carry Putin's water? I think Tucker at this point is, he is such a sort of dominant force on Fox that I think Tucker is allowed to do what Tucker wants to do. I'm not sure if the higher ups at, at Fox really have the ability at this point to kind of control what Tucker would say. I mean, he's, he's probably too powerful even for his own organization. And so I think, you know, Tucker has built his audience again on being a contrarian. And so I think a lot of his early support for Putin I mean, again, going back years before this latest invasion in Ukraine has just been because it's sort of bucking the establishment. Um, you know, it's, it's finding common cause with people who are sort of rebellious. But it's what's less clear is, is why that has manifest in a way that uh, has times led to Tucker just sort of peddling straight Russian disinformation, like about bioweapons labs in Ukraine. I mean, this is nonsense. I mean, it's clearly false. Um, Tucker is smart enough to know that. So why he has become the front for pushing outright disinformation narratives to the biggest audience in the U.S., um, when you talk about sort of influence on cable news, that to me is less is less clear. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, again, I think it goes back more toward this sort of this is the kind of U.S. policy is to be against Russia, so I'm going to be for them. Um, but I don't, I don't know why he is stuck so closely to those guns as it has become apparent who Putin is and what he's doing. Well, Brett Schaefer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. 
And again, I've been speaking with Brett Schaefer, who's a senior fellow and head of the Information Manipulation Team for the Alliance of Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund, an expert in computational propaganda, state-backed information operations, and tech regulation. He is the creator and manager of Hamilton 2.0, an online open-source dashboard tracking the outputs of Russian, Chinese, and Iranian state media outlets, diplomats, and government officials. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine